Hey, good to see everybody today. Wave at me a little bit. You awake? You excited to be here today in church? Man, I'm so excited. I love being in the presence of God. I tell you what, you can, you can watch uh, church services, uh, worship music on YouTube at home and enjoy that Monday through Saturday. But on Sunday morning, come on, there's nothing like being in the house of God. I know we're in a movie theater, right? I, I didn't forget. We didn't like construct a temple. This is a movie theater. Like there's probably gum on your pants when you get up or whatever and uh, popcorn under your feet. But when we come together as the people of God, right, to worship God, God is here. His presence is here. And uh, it says in the scriptures that the Lord is enthroned in the praises of his people. And today as we worship God and we seek him and, and lift up his name, he comes in and he's here to meet your needs. He's here to transform your life. I don't care where you come from, what your past is, your history, because God has a future for you. And you can discover that in God's presence. So maybe you came in here today discouraged. You're going to leave encouraged. Can I get an amen? Maybe you came in here uh, uh, a little bit torn up on the inside, dealing with addiction. I believe God can set you free. Come on, you can have victory. And we're talking about that in this series, Yes, I Can, going from a no, I can't mindset to a yes, I can mindset. How many of you think when you come to the Lord and you, you give your life to Jesus, and I know there's people here maybe today that you haven't done that yet, but I'm believing that by the end of today, you're gonna say, I, I want in with this Jesus thing, because it's not like the religion and the bondage that maybe you think it is, it's actually completely setting you free. And how many of you that know Jesus would say, there's something different when he comes in your life that your mindset changes and things begin to change. Maybe the external things don't change right away, but things begin to change, that your mind begins to change, your heart begins to change. There's transformation from the inside out. And so we're talking about that, that God wants to transform us by changing the way that we think, moving from no, I can't to yes, I can can. Somebody say, yes, I can. Yes, I can. We want to be that Thomas the train engine uh, church. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I can do it, right? I can be who God wants me to be. I can do what God wants me to do. I can do what he's called me to do, right? Come on, church. All right. Amen. Well, I'm excited this morning to talk about the, uh, this topic of, of failure. And today's message is called, Yes, I Can Come Back From failure. Now, unfortunately, my messages have lined up perfectly with Ducks football losses. Last week was, yes, I can overcome trouble. We lost. Yes, I can come back from failure. Last night, we failed. But next week's message, my friends, is called, yes, I can have victory. So it's going to be a good Saturday and a good Sunday. Yeah, you're like, we're put take it to the bank, pastor. All right. But today, I want to share this message with you. Yes, I can come back from failure. Yes, I can come back from failure. Now, we've been following along with the life of David in the book of Samuel and going through his story. And most of the things that we've looked at with David and his life are moments of victory and moments where he overcomes trouble. And David is the hero of the story. He kills Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. And he, he, he's not like King Saul. Uh, he, he's better than King Saul. And, and God is using him. And you know, a lot of times in life, we, we can look at the, these Bible characters like King David and we can think that they were just sort of perfect and flawless, that they didn't have any shadows or failures in their life. But actually, David had great successes and great victories, but he also had colossal failure. And I love the fact that when God was inscripturating his revelation, that's fun theological words for you to use with your friends later, that when God was putting his revelation of his character and nature into the form that we call the Bible so we could perceive and recognize God and learn and grow and be transformed. And, 
have an interaction with God is self-revelation. When he was doing that, he had these people that we call these Bible characters and these heroes of the faith. And there's people like Moses and David and Noah and uh, Peter and Paul and these different characters that we have in the Bible, right? And it's interesting to me because if you read the Bible from like a Sunday school kind of immature perspective, you sort of can gloss over the fact that almost every person in the Bible other than Jesus is a colossal failure, is deeply insecure, has fatal flaws, makes horrible mistakes, and yet God still chooses to use them to do great things. And I want to tell you today, maybe you're here and you're like, no, I've messed up too bad. I, I have too much of a past and God can't do anything with my life. I'm no good for what God wants to do. I just want to tell you right now, your past does not disqualify you from having a future. Your past does not take you out of the game of what God wants to do in and through your life. Because God made you on purpose and for purpose. I think we maybe have a gigantic banner now that says this so I can point to it. You were made on purpose and for a purpose. And your past doesn't disqualify you. Yes, you can come back from failure. Because failure is a part of what it means to be a human. You know, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God and bring that into our story as the human race, like failure is a part of us. And I, I think what happens in church a lot of times is we get this whole thing like, well, back when I was a sinner, there was some failure in my life. But now that I'm a Christian, everything's perfect. And a lot of people hear that story and they go, mm, something kind of fishy about that. And how many of you know that even when we're following Jesus and we're growing in our faith and we're growing in our walk with the Lord, there's still failure in our life. There's still moments where we make the wrong decision. And by the grace of God, we want to learn and grow so we don't make the same mistakes, but there's still failure in our life. And so I want to talk to us today about I can come back from failure. So we're going to jump back into the story of David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we're jumping forward in his life many, many years because last week was about Ziklag and in the interim, David has become the king of Israel. He's become, he, he's become who God made him to be. He's, he's taken on this role. He was called to be king, and now he's the king of Israel. And he's had great victory, and God has blessed him. And we're going to talk about that next week, the victory that comes when we follow God, the victory that is possible. But I wanted to highlight the failure, probably this, the significant central failure of David's life. And isn't that awesome that we get to read his story as opposed to us like maybe telling your story or my story of failure. How many of you appreciate that we have like an example of somebody who lived many years ago <laughs> so we don't have to get our own story out in front of everybody? Amen, okay. Well, I'm glad for that at least. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse one, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. I, when I heard the king's men, all I could think of was Humpty Dumpty. Sorry. Okay. And the whole Israelite army, they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And it says one evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Time out. This message is going to be PG-13. So if you have 12-year-old or younger children in here, it might be smart to take them to the kids class disclaimer. Who's excited for the message now? Okay, moving forward. David is looking at a woman bathing uh, from his rooftop, says the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of 
Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, I want to pause here for a second because these names don't mean anything to us, but they meant something to David, and I'll tell you why. David's chief counselor, a man that had been with him for many, many years, is a man named Ahithophel. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Ahithophel is the father of a man named Eliam. And Eliam has a daughter named Bathsheba. So this is the granddaughter of one of David's closest friends, trusted advisors, a man that had walked with him through thick and thin. This is not a stranger. This is someone that David is at least aware of the family connection. Eliam is one of David's mighty men. And Uriah is also one of David's mighty men. So when you hear this story, we need to understand that when this messenger says, David, that's Bathsheba, the daughter of your, one of your best friends and the granddaughter of the guy that's probably standing just outside the door, maybe even in the room right now that you are looking at and asking for. This is a pretty serious situation here. And David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then that's why she was taking a bath. She's following this Levitical principle after that monthly period that she was cleansing herself. That's why she's taking the bath. She's not out there trying to be like, ooh, look at me taking a bath. So get, get that out of your head. That's not what's going on here. This woman is actually following what she's meant to do according to the, this law that they're under, what, they're, what she's practicing. David calls for her. She comes and he gets, uh, he takes advantage of her. Now, I want to be clear here. This is not adultery. This is what we call a power rape. And that's why I said this is a PG-13, but we're in the real world and we need to talk about this. David is a king. David is a despotic king in the Middle East and a time in history when the word of the king is the word of the king. And if you disobey or go against it, that means off with your head in case anybody wasn't familiar with the, what I was doing there. It's that's, you're gone. Anyways, David abuses his power. He sends for her. He brings her. He takes her. All the language, even in the original language, is, is giving us clues that this is not a mutual, hey, baby, uh, my husband's not here. Let's do something here. That's not what's happening here. This is an abuse of his power and authority. It says in verse five, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, it's her husband. And Joab sent him to David from the battlefield where he was. When Uriah came to him and David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were and how the war was going, then David said, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked him, haven't you just come from military campaign? Why didn't you just go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Job and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Uriah has integrity. Uriah is a man that is doing the right thing. He says, no, no, no. When, when my men are out in the field, when we're where we're supposed to be, and the implication is that David isn't where he's supposed to be, that we don't have fun. It's not a time to party. We're at war. And David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk because what's he trying to do? Get him to go home. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest then withdraw from him so he will be struck down 
and die. How many of you think like King David, what a nice guy. Oh man, we just love God uses people and you know, they make small mistakes. No, this isn't a small mistake. This is what we call colossal, utter catastrophe, a a, a complete and utter failure of his moral integrity. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. We're going to skip forward to verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house again. Go get her. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. How many of you feel encouraged today? Lord bless you. Go out and be at peace. No, we're going to dig into this. I believe you are going to leave here encouraged. But we need to look into this because I think the story of David and his failure can help us find freedom because all of us, maybe we haven't sinned or failed at this level, but we have all failed. And this is not the end of the story. Even at the darkest and the deepest moment, it's not the end of the story. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would speak to us today. God, I know this is a hard topic. It's a hard passage to read. It's hard to see one of these men that we look at as a hero and see the depth of his depravity and sin. But Lord, it's a, we can look in, as if in a mirror at our own heart reflected here that God inside of us is a heart that is deceitfully wicked, Lord, and, and only you can know it. God, you, you are the one that can bring transformation and you can help us leave this place of failure to a place of victory once more, a place of restoration. So God, I pray that you would speak to us today in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. I want to make a couple, just make a couple uh, notes here on failure and the nature of failure. And the first one is that failure comes when we're not where we're supposed to be. You see, one of the things I want to help you do as your pastor is I want to speak to you and say, God can redeem and restore you from a place of failure. But you know what's even better is when God has done that, that we don't just go back and make the same mistakes. How many of you know that there's always grace, but that doesn't preclude wisdom? Anybody? Is anybody in the house want some wisdom today. All right. Yes, God can make a mess or can make a, God can, he can make a mess. He wants, he can make a mosaic out of our mess. Yes, God can bring beauty from ashes, but God can also bring beauty from beauty. You don't have to necessarily go into colossal failure. And I would encourage you, if you're considering in, in your heart of hearts, taking steps that you know are wrong, right now you can hear the word of the Lord and say, I'm not going to do that. Isn't that a beautiful thing? that God has given you free will. Now you can be very, very tempted, but the Bible says there's no temptation that is common to man that God has not provided a way of escape. There's always a way to get out of it. One of the best things you can do when you're faced with temptation is begin to pray because you can't, those two, the the spirit of God and iniquity and evil can't coexist in the same place. So when I'm like, I want to do this wrong thing, I'll just begin to, Lord, I begin to pray. I'll begin to pray in tongues. I begin to pray in the spirit begin to to pray because when the spirit of God is there, everything else has to go. But listen, failure comes when we're not where we're supposed to be. It says back here in verse one, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent someone else to go to war. Listen, when it's your battle to fight, you go. At the time when a man should be in bed with his wife at night, but he's not. Do you hear what I'm saying? Failure can come. 
at a time when you're supposed to be at work, but you're talking to somebody somewhere else at a little extra lunch that has nothing to do with business, that's the time when you shouldn't be there in that moment. Come on, somebody. At the time when kings go off to war, David sent out his men. He wasn't supposed to be on top of a palace at that moment. And that's when failure comes in those kind of moments. And then what we see is that one sin leads to another. So David starts with not being in the right place. And then he moves to lust because he's looking down off the palace into the courtyards that he wasn't supposed to be. And there was actually uh, kind of a, an unspoken rule that the, you were c- to keep your gaze elevated because at an elevated place, this, everybody had these open courtyards. And so David was aware of what was going on. He wasn't necessarily looking for trouble, but he was doing the wrong thing in the wrong place. And what happens is lust becomes a rape. Rape turns to lying and manipulating and trying to trick Uriah. And when that doesn't work, what ends up happening is murder. Now, I'm sure David wasn't on a rooftop one day on an afternoon thinking, geez, I sure hope in the next few months I can have someone murdered, one of my closest friends, and betray people that have fought with me and been with me for years. See, nobody ever starts off and says, when I grow up, I want to screw up my entire life and destroy people's lives around me. That doesn't happen. But what happens is the choices that we make at a small level always lead to bigger things. One sin leads to another. But we see in verse 27 that God sees. God sees. He sees. It says the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You, you can do things in secret. You can do things in private. You can do things uh, that nobody else knows about. And we all have this level of failure in our life, right? The things that we, are secrets or whatever, that we, things we've done or whatever, but God always sees. And I want to talk to you about this because it's a good thing that God sees because he loves us too much to let us off the hook. God loves you too much to allow a soul-destroying sin remain in your life. He's always going to bring pressure against it, not because he wants to hurt you, but because he wants to heal you. Come on, God wants to restore you. God wants to help you with what's going on. God loves you too much to let you off the hook. It says that David, thing had done, had displeased the Lord. And so in the very next chapter, we see that David is moving forward, but we find out later that he's soul sick. We know that you can't just do this and not nothing happens. And so David is soul sick. And what happens is the prophet Nathan comes in in the very next chapter. And I, don't, I won't read it, but Nathan tells David a story and David is like, upset because Nathan gives him a parable that describes the situation that he just went through, but he he frames it in a way that David doesn't realize it's him. And Nathan says, David, you're the one that did this thing. And David is struck with this, that he's caught, you know, it's exposed, his sin. And David repents. He says, I'm sorry. He admits it. David comes clean when God confronts him, when, when the prophet Nathan speaks to him. And this is where the story begins to take a better turn. Because David in this moment has done all of these horrible things and it's brought him to this moment. But by the love and the grace of God, the mercy of God, God has brought a person to bring confrontation and speak truth in his life so that David has an opportunity to change. And David repents. And what we get out of this repentance is one of the most beautiful passages of scripture that you will ever find. David writes a prayer of repentance and it's Psalm 51. And we're gonna read that today. This is the response of David. 
This is what he wrote down in response to this exact scenario, this situation that he's gone through. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. How many of you know when you're caught in the trap of sin, it, it's always right in front of you. you it's never, it doesn't just disappear, it's there. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. What David is saying is that God wove into us the knowledge of right and wrong. We know what God wants intuitively, even if we don't do it. You see, nobody can say, well, I didn't know. Because God put inside of you, hardwired, coded into you, whether into your spirit, soul, or body, he hardwired into you the knowledge of good and evil. It's there. And we know when we do things that are wrong. And maybe we don't have words for why it was wrong, but how many of you remember being a very little kid and making a conscious decision to do the wrong thing and knowing it was wrong? I do, right? And then, and then even lying and covering it up and trying to explain why it wasn't bad or whatever, but we know because it's hardwired in and David is talking about that. He says in verse seven, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David is asking for restoration of that thing that God wants him to have, which is joy in his salvation. Can I tell you, when you know Jesus, there's nothing like the joy that comes from walking in freedom and life and peace with him, yes. right? Because no matter what you, where you've been or where you are or even what's happening in your life or where you're going, when you have the Lord on the inside of you and he's working in your life, there's a joy that is, uh, you can't, it can't be touched by any circumstance. And David is reflecting upon this. He says in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. And what David says here is religion will never make us right with God. The only thing that will make you right with God is a broken and a contrite spirit opened up in relationship with him. There's no sacrifice. David couldn't say, well, now that I've done this sin, God, I'll pay you back on the back end until we're good again. See, that's what effort and earning and religion says is that we can do some things to basically even our accounts with God. But that's the antithesis of the gospel. The gospel says your debt that you owe to God is so great that you could never pay it back. But by the grace and mercy of God revealed in Jesus, he opened the riches and treasures of heaven and sent his only son to die on the cross so that we could be made right with God and all the bills are paid. But that's the only way the bill gets paid. The Lord only accepts that credit card that has the blood of Jesus, that, that logo on it. He doesn't take Visa. He, he doesn't take MasterCard. Come on. You can't PayPal your way into heaven. It just doesn't work. Venmo, does, you can't do it. 
I love when my mom, she's trying to pay, you know, she tries to pay us back for something or whatever. And she's like, how do I send you money? I'm like, mom, you could do this. She's like, I don't have that. What do you, what do you mean? I heard her talking with one of her friends about trying to pay this lady and they had done some weird thing. I think they were sending it by carrier pigeon or something <laughs> that she was trying to figure out. You can't pay God back any, you can't pay God back. You can receive what he's done for you. Come on, somebody. And David says, Lord, you don't delight in sacrifice. I can't earn my way back. I just have to receive what you've done for me. My sacrifice is a broken spirit. Maybe you're here today and you're like, you know what? I haven't failed like David, but I failed colossally, massively, hugely. There's a a trail of broken lives, like what David left behind here, and even active consequences in my life because of my failure. Listen, maybe that's your story, but I just want to tell you right now, you know, you, you know, all that you can do before the Lord is, is say, God, I'm going to just have a broken heart before you and I'm going to hand you the pieces of the mess that I've made. My kids, they have all these blocks. They have Legos and Duplos and everything that destroys the human foot. And they're always strategically placed. One of my son's favorite places to play with his blocks is in the middle of the hall that leads from my bedroom to the kitchen, the two most important places, right? Where I sleep, where I eat. It's like, you know, and so right in this thoroughfare, it's, you know, you hit these Legos. And oftentimes when Jack and Evie and Penny, they have toys, they, they put them together, whatever. Then they like to smash them and break them apart. You know, I, a lot of times we're like, guys, you know, pick it up. And they're overwhelmed by the mess that's made. And a lot of times Bethany and I have to come together and actually help them bring the pieces back together and get them into the container so that there can be another try. You know, a lot of times in our life, we're overwhelmed by the mess that we've made. And, we, and, and it was fun smashing it to pieces, but when it's all in pieces, it's not fun anymore. And listen, God, your wonderful, loving father comes to you even in this moment to say, can I help you clean this up? Can I help you put these pieces back together so that we can get back to creating something that's really cool again? You see, God's heart for you is not to leave you in pieces. God's heart for you is to give you purpose. So a lot of times we think, oh, God's mad at me And so I'm in pieces. And so now he wants to smash me into more pieces. That's not the heart of God. When my kids make a big mess, my heart isn't to just like come and scatter it. So it's harder for them to put it back together. My my heart as a loving father is to help them bring it together so that we can get back to fun. And when you think about God that way, as a loving father, is God less loving than me? Absolutely not. Is God less wise uh, than me? No, (laughs) no. Most of you are not less wise than me, right? I said most, because I know some, some of y'all, you know, but no, I'm just teasing. God has a wonderful heart of a father for us. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to contribute to the mess. He wants to help you get it right. And so David says, Lord, I bring a broken and a contrite spirit. So let's, let's, let's close with this. How can I come back from failure? How can I get back with God and get back to the awesome purpose that I was made for, what God wants to do in my life. I want to give you a couple of thoughts. Number one, we need to start with crying out to God. One of the best things you can do when you're in trouble is cry out to God. What does it mean to cry out to God? Demonstration. God! And close, end scene. Cry out to God. Help! Right? Sometimes with my kids, this is what we always hear. I'm ready. And what that means is it's time to be wiped, right? They're crying out. <laughs> a mess has been made. <laughs> and it's time. When, when you are in trouble, when you have failed, and what does David do? He cries out to God. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. He's calling God, come into my, he's not saying, God, I'll do this for you. I'll do this for you. I'll do this for you. If you do, he starts with God, come help me, right? Cry out to God. Number two, admit your failure. Do you know the best thing to do? I messed up. I failed. I sinned. I did the wrong thing. David doesn't go, well, she was out there bathing. So then I used my authority and uh, da, 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 da. And I, yeah, I made a mistake, but I really though, she shouldn't have, isn't that what we do? Well, you know, yeah, I was rude and mean to my family. I came in and I was all mad. I was kicking stuff, but my kids were, no, I'm wrong. I made a mistake. I did the wrong thing. I failed. I sinned. You know, it's interesting with, with, with kids, one of the hardest things to say is, I'm sorry. It's like those words don't work. You know what I mean? Tell your sister you're sorry. <laughs> I can't make it happen. Why? Because there's something on the inside of us that doesn't like to admit that we screwed up. Admit your failure. Number three, receive forgiveness. See, there's a scripture, Paul the Apostle writes about the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Unrighteous people feel bad about what they've done, but they take that sorrow and they feel guilty and ashamed and all this kind of stuff. And it ends up just leading to more wrongdoing. The Apostle Paul says, but godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance means turning around and walking the other way. Repentance is like, that wasn't good. Let's leave, Right? This restaurant stinks. Let's go to a different one. Repentance is just changing direction. I was doing one thing and I realized it was bad. And so I went the other direction. It's not deeply theological. It's actually pretty practical. Repentance is, is just changing. And godly sorrow leads us to repentance. It leads us to say, that wasn't good. I feel bad because I sinned. I did the wrong thing. I don't like how I feel. I want to go a different direction. God, will you help me? go a different direction, but we don't wallow in shame. God does not get any glory when you don't believe the gospel. Think about this. Well, I sin too much and God can't do anything for me. That doesn't give glory to God. That gives glory to your own sin. Why would our, our don't ever let your failure be greater than God's goodness. Well, you don't know what I've done and I don't need to know, but God knows and God sees and he's, and he's still dealing with you and he wants to extend his hand and pull you back into the game, to pull you back into life, to pull you back into purpose. Well, I have too many, there's too much brokenness. No, you're not giving God glory by wallowing and dwelling in the muck. You give God glory when you say, I will take what you offer to me and I'll take that hand that you're handing to me and I'm gonna step up into what you've called me to do and who you've called me to be. God wants you to come back from failure. And so we have to receive forgiveness. Listen, if Christians, not lost people, not unchurched people, but Christians, if Christians would simply believe the gospel, the world would change. If Christians would believe the gospel, that God is so good that by his grace, he's offered us forgiveness and a path forward, a place in his family. If we believed the gospel, the world would change. The problem is that most Christians don't actually believe the gospel. They believe in a religious expression. They believe in going to church on Sundays. They might even believe in tithing. They might believe in uh, certain moral principles, but they don't believe the gospel because the gospel is what I'm talking about right now, that even in the midst of your colossal failure, you don't depend on your own earning effort, goodness, righteousness, but you say, I'm a mess. God, I'm crying out to you and I receive what you want to do 
in me. And this is what David does. He just says, God, cleanse me. God, you do this work. God, I've sinned against you. David isn't even thinking about the other people. And it seems really horribly selfish, but actually this is the correct way to respond to God because you can't fix other people that you've messed up. A lot of times we get all broken because we're like, well, I hurt this person and I have to make it right. No, you can't. You, you made a mess and you can't, nothing you have can get that mess off. The best thing you can do is get right with God and let God get right with them. And let God use your life to be a blessing. And we'll talk about this. But David receives forgiveness and it's scandalous. We sing a song, uh, we haven't sung it in a long time, but the scandal of grace, real grace is scandalous. It doesn't make sense. It's not fair. It's not fair that, that I get to be a Christian. It's not fair that you get to receive grace, but it's what God wanted to do. And it leads us to this, to embrace purpose. And then David goes from receiving forgiveness. And this is like an amazingly, it sounds arrogant because he's just raped and murdered and lied and hidden his sin and all this kind of stuff. But then in verse 13, he says, you know, in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit. And then he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. God, I will stand up and be the preacher of your ways. How absurd is that? No, no, David, you're not qualified. See, this is a theme in David's life. He wasn't qualified because of his youth to fight a giant. He wasn't qualified because of his birth order to be king. He wasn't qualified ever, and he's not qualified now. You know what David is a picture of? He's a picture of all of us. That you're always disqualified in your own strength. What qualifies you is not your capacity, it's your faith in God. And David says, Lord, I will do what you've called me to do. Even though I failed horribly, I'm still gonna step up. You see, I believe right now there's dreams and destinies that are dead in your heart and in your mind today that God wants to resurrect in this moment. And you said, no, I'm disqualified because of my past, because of what I've done, because of what I'm doing right now, I'm disqualified. And the Holy Spirit wants to come and speak to you today and say, no, you're not disqualified. You couldn't, you never were qualified in your own. You never will be. What qualifies you is do you respond to the word of the Lord? Do you respond to the grace of God? Do you respond to the gospel? And David embraces purpose. And I love this. He's like, you know what? We lost 40 something to 15, but next week we're going to put a hurt on somebody. Come on. We, we got our butts handed to us in a sack and they sent us on the airplane and sent us home, but there's another game next week and we got to step up somebody. You hear what I'm saying? Oh yeah. You messed up. You, you destroyed it. You wrecked your marriage. You blew through all that money. You smoked it all, you know, <laughs> whatever happened. But now God has, still has purpose in your life. And David says, I'll teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt uh, of bloodshed. God, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips. God, I'm going to use my mouth to declare your praise. And David is talking about worship. See, when we receive forgiveness and we embrace purpose, it leads us back into a place of worship where we stand before God and say, God, I was never justified in my own strength. I'm only justified by you. And so God, I, I, I'm gonna live this life of worship. I will live for your glory. And David also embraces humility. And he goes to this, my sacrifice is a broken heart. A person who stands with the Lord is not arrogant and proud. They're humble and contrite. A person who stands with the Lord doesn't stand in their own strength. They stand fully dependent upon the grace and the goodness of God. And so when we talk about how can we come back from failure, the failures in our life, we need to cry out to God, admit our failures, receive his forgiveness, embrace purpose, worship him and embrace humility. Have I messed up too bad? It might be your question. 
Am I a lost cause? Have I missed out on God's plan for me? Did the train go by and I'm still standing at the station looking like a fool because it's never coming back? And the answer is no. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 38, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the first book that he wrote, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you remember the story, Aslan, representing Jesus, is this great lion. He's the savior of Narnia, the king. And the white witch who's held Narnia in her sway under endless winter with no Christmas, oh my. They get Aslan and she gets all her goblins and ghouls and yeah, and they come together, the evil spirits and all these things. And little Lucy and Susan are there in the thicket watching this event take place. And he tells a story about how Aslan gets up onto the stone table and on the stone table is written about justice and how blood must be shed for betrayal. And the white witch, they tie Aslan down and she, she kills Aslan and the girls are weeping. But then as the sun begins to come up and the light dawns in the sky, they hear a great crack and they look and the stone table is broken. And they run and they say, what's happened to Aslan? And then he appears there and he tells them about a deeper magic, something that was older than the stone table. And he tells them that when one offers willingly their life for the betrayer, that that curse, that table is cracked and broken. It's a picture of what God did. That before even the foundations of the world, the lamb was slain. There's a deeper truth, a deeper magic, something that was there before even the foundations of the world that God in his graciousness and his wisdom knew that he would redeem us and pull us out of darkness and give us a way And I just want to tell you right now that when the scriptures say that nothing can separate you from the love of God, it's true. And so if you're sitting here today thinking, well, this can separate me and this can separate me and this can separate me, you're wrong (laughs) because nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so you're sitting here today going, well, no, but I feel my failure. Yeah, you, you feel it and you will feel it. But faith isn't about feelings. It's about trusting in God regardless of whatever else is there. And so today, what I want to invite you to do, every single one of us, and I don't care if you have been a Christian for 25 years, or if this is your moment today where you're going to do this for the first time, but I would like every single one of us today to receive Jesus. I would like every one of us today to respond to the gospel and say, you know what? I'm going to believe that. I'm going to receive that. I'm going to accept that nothing can separate me from the love of God and that I can come back from failure.